postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. A world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out. An alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising a white flag and saying, Ah! It's all the secular people's fault and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic campaign. How can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism Redesigned. Hey everyone, it's Pastor Marcus and I want to welcome you back to the Story Church Podcast. Today I am having part two of my conversation with Sarah McDougall and our conversation, if you remember just a few couple podcasts ago actually, was Are Your Church's Evangelism Tactics Abusive? And uh, we had our first interview and we were not able to finish and so we had scheduled a second interview and this week we finally get to sit down and, uh, and, and finish this interview and finish this conversation. Um, so this is part two of Are Your Church's Evangelism Tactics Abusive? So I want to thank you guys for taking the time to listen again and um, as I usually do, just take a moment to thank the patrons who support the Story Church Project and uh, also those of you who send in emails and comments and, and those of you who've been to the store and, and bought some of the books. Really, really appreciate it, guys. It's a huge blessing to know that the work that's being done here is resonating with you. So thank you for that. Now, as we dive into our conversation today, I just want to take a moment once again to reintroduce our guest, Sarah McDougall, who is, if I recall correctly, and uh, hopefully I don't butcher this, um, abuse recovery coach. Sarah, please tell me if I totally butchered that. No, you got it spot on. All right, beautiful. Good, good, good work there. Good going. <laughs> well, welcome back, Sarah. I'm really excited. It, it's actually taken a few goes. We, we kept running into obstacles that prevented uh, us from getting together a second time. But from what you mentioned in the message you sent me earlier this week, that there, there may have been a divine a plan behind Absolutely. that. Yeah, that we'll get to um, yeah. unravel later with a story that you're going to share with us. Um, it was all on purpose. That's what I think. It was all on purpose. Gotta love it, man. Gotta yeah. love it. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, look, Sarah, welcome back. I'm super stoked to have part two of this conversation. And for those of you who are tuning in and maybe you didn't hear part one, hit pause, hit stop, go back and listen to part one and then come and listen to part two, because part two is going to make a lot more sense if you've listened to part one. So again, Sarah, welcome to welcome to the um, podcast again. And because we're taking off from where we left off last time, um, I wanted to begin by picking your brains with a question, if that's okay. Sure. All right. Yeah, absolutely. Now, in our first interview, um, Are Your Church's Evangelism Tactics Abusive?, the main thing that we focused on was the patterns or rituals of using fear to get people to choose Jesus. Uh, we talked about that quite a bit. And the interview got a lot of really good feedback, had a lot of great comments, emails, you know, and stuff that came through. Um, but there were also a few people who had some questions and, and one of them, and here, here's where I want to start picking your brain because I actually was anticipating that these questions would come <laughs> oh, through because I've heard them many times. I bet there were questions. <laughs> <laughs> so, here's, so here's the main question. Um, doesn't the Bible sometimes use fear 
to get its point across. For example, these are some of the examples I heard from people. Uh, Noah warning people about a flood, like we could accuse him of fear-mongering. Or the prophet's mm -hmm. warning of a coming invasion, like Jeremiah. We're pretty much most of his message mm -hmm. was, the Babylonians are coming. You know, we, we could accuse, accuse him of being a doomsdayer. Oh, run, quick. Um, revelation, yeah. you know, you got like things like the seven mm -hmm. last plagues and, and all this stuff. And so there's a sense in which some people feel like we should use fear to promote the right. biblical message because the Bible does. So what do you do with that in light of this conversation that we're having about using fear to get people to choose Jesus? Well, okay, so it, I, I think that's an excellent question because it can sound kind of confusing. Um, I also think that there are people, uh, as, as you and I said, when I think it was kind of a comment you made when we were just talking just a few minutes ago before we started recording, uh, there's a lot of people who use that concept as an excuse to just be Jesus jerks. So, you know, and, and if you're trying to latch on to a reason to make other people scared, then maybe you need to reassess why you love getting that reaction from people. Like, what mm -hmm. is it about your internal um, mindset that gets off on making other people scared? Because there's something wrong with that. Um, but it can also be a really legitimate question. So I'm going to address it from the perspective, like let's just assume that was a super legitimate question from a well-intentioned person. Um, and, and there's a couple of things. So we have to balance everything in the Bible with each other, right? Mm. We, we don't just take one thing and build a whole doctrine on it. Um, we also, you know, the whole line upon line, precept upon precept, this kind of understanding that God does not contradict himself. So on one hand over here, God says unequivocally, God is love. Whatever else we bring out of in our understanding of God's character, it has to be compatible with God's statement about himself that he is love. Otherwise, we're not understanding it right. That's right. We're rewriting it. So um, that's my first thought. Second, though, um, anyone who's been a parent knows that children have a very limited understanding of all the big, scary stuff in the world. <laughs> yes, so, so you right? You have you have small kids, right? I have oh, kids yeah. who are not so small, but you know what? They have a really, really limited understanding and comprehension of how much junk in the world could harm them. Mm. They need me as a parent to help instruct them about the choices that they are faced with in order to understand the facts. That's right. So facts for example, if you run across the street to the mailbox without looking both ways, you could die, darling, because <laughs> we live on a school bus street, and a school bus will crush you. Your body against a school bus is not going to win the battle, That's so right. you're going to die if you choose to do that. Toddler. One and a half years old, toddling around. It's a bonfire. It's camp out, whatever, and you tell the baby, baby, no, hot, it will hurt you. Mm. Are you using fear tactics or are you telling the child facts about something that is bigger than them so that they can hopefully someday come to the level of maturity to make an informed, wise decision? Yeah. Well, 
I see God in all of those things in the Bible where there's this, if you do this, I will do that kind of things. They are all if this, then that. Anybody in IT knows that if this, then that is a pretty common type of formula. It's how you (laughs) explain that one thing over here is going to have an effect of that thing over there. And so there are a lot of if this, then that things programmed into the physical world. Touch fire. If you touch the fire, then this, you will get burned. Hmm. If you jump off a roof, you're going to fall. Gravity is built into the planet on which we live. There are so many things that are built into the cause and effect scenario. And God is a free choice cause and effect God. It's how he created the whole universe. Hmm. Everything we do has a cause and an effect. So you just said, you're talking about Noah. Okay, well, put Noah side by side with Jonah. Same kind of scenario, right? Yeah, yeah. One lone man against a degraded, horrifically violent, brutal world. Bringing a message, if you don't repent, this will happen. We have two different, two different things where... You had the scenario with Jonah. They repented. Mm. And guess what? The city was not destroyed. Mm. They got to choose. It's like these storybooks for children. You get to choose the ending. You Mm. can pick from your options along the way. God gives us options to choose from at every step of the way. The really cool thing about God is that he actually tells us what the end result will be ahead of time. If you pick this, then that will happen. If you pick this, then that will happen. If you pick this over here, then that will happen. You get to make fully informed choices. So no, I don't see those things in scripture as being God using fear mongering. Mm. I see him delivering facts so that we can make well-informed decisions using the brain power that he gave us and with the caveat to every potentially fearful situation, him saying, but if you choose to obey me, if you choose to pray, if my people pray, if you repent, if you do this, if you come back to me, if you bring yourself under the umbrella of my protection, those horrible things won't happen. Yeah. Now, caveat, we also live in a degraded, sinful terrible world where there is illness and there are accidents and there is a force of evil who is constantly working to destroy us. So I do not believe in making that statement that every bad thing that happens is somehow ordained by God to cause pain because I also believe there's this balancing impact of evil that is fighting against good. That's right. And I believe that pain and that tragedy and these horrific things that happen in the world are the result of the forces of evil, Lucifer warring against Jesus Christ, Satan against God. So, you know, I'm not in in that. I'm not saying that if you live a perfectly obedient life, you're never going to have anything bad happen to you. What I am saying is that God tells us that if we make choices to remove ourselves actively and intentionally from the umbrella of his protection and 
the obedience to the things that he knows will give us a better life, he tells us what the results will be. And we get to choose. So I don't see it as fear mongering. I see it as fact delivering so that we have the freedom to make wise, informed choices because that's yeah. what he wants for us. I love that, man. You know, one of the um, one of the the commenters that asked that question that was similar, not not as not as elaborate, but um, a similar similar response that I gave him that we're not promoting the idea that we throw away the things from the Bible that are warnings, for example. Um, there's nothing problematic with those warnings. It's it's the approach that we use to deliver them. You know, you you can use that right. as a tool to manipulate, to to gain. Um, control over someone's conscience, um, to take take advantage of someone who's you know uh, afraid, uh, to make a particular decision, um, or you can deliver those as warnings that inform the individual, give them the capacity to then yes. weigh up the options for themselves, and and so it's not about saying hey you know let's just let's just talk about Jesus loves me and forget everything else because it's mean and not nice. Um, it's it's about preaching the full message and and being able to embrace Absolutely. the uncomfortable parts of Scripture. But seeing them in the lens of God's love, and I think that's the I think that's the challenge is that sometimes we approach the Bible with the lens of our own pathologies, and 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 when we have these unhealthy, <laughs> you know, emotional problems, um, yes. we we approach Scripture from that sense, and then that's what we distribute to other people. And and what we're saying <laughs> is, let let Scripture be approach Scripture from the lens of God's love. And then take that yes. lens and use it to not only understand, but also deliver these messages to the people around you. And, and it is a completely different experience when you do it from that angle than when you do mm -hmm. it from an angle of emotional instability or coercion or fear mongering. You can deliver the same message with a completely different result. Exactly. Well, and and I'm, I'm thinking back on to the whole parenting Thing because we are God's children, God is our heavenly parent. There's an awful lot of carryover between the parent-child and the parenting, the heavenly parenting kind of um, metaphors. There illustrations that I see in our relationship with God. Hmm. And you know, if if I have a child that is highly impulsive, ask me how I know this. Um, if I have a child who is highly impulsive and who doesn't always think things through as to the potential danger, and I don't bother to tell them that tying on a cape and leaping off the corner of the roof is a bad idea, um, do I really love that child? If I have a child who's running toward a fire or running in front of a bus and I have the opportunity not I have the opportunity to tell them that that is they need to stop that is going to hurt them mm -hmm. and I choose not to I don't love that child enough to inconvenience myself to give them information about their safety mm -hmm. that is an unloving parent who yeah. would not warn them and I even use this this mindset when I am parenting my children, uh, and I will often tell them, I love you too much to let you grow up being ugly to other people. I love you too much to let you get away with calling your brother names when you're angry. Do you know why? Because that will make you an ugly, unkind, mean-spirited grown-up. Mm -hmm. And I want you to be kind and likable and self-regulated when you're a grown-up. 
so, I know it's unpleasant right now, but I love you too much to let you get away with that bad behavior. If I let you get away with that bad behavior, I am showing you I do not love you enough to inconvenience myself and to go through the unpleasantness now of helping you become a better person later. I do it because I love you enough. That's right. To make it happen. I, and, I, and I'd also point out one, one more thing before we, before we dive into the rest of our conversation and, um, in this scenario is that's also important to note um, is that, you know, like, for example, the example that you're using, um, you know, like it's, it's your, like it's your child and you have a relationship with your child. And, and I think that that's important to know as well, even though it's an illustration that you're using, but I think it, it bears worth noting that because sometimes what you have in church, particularly when we're giving someone, you know, in, I'll, I'll use the phrase warning message, um, uh, not, not 100% of the time, there's some nuances to this as well, but oftentimes uh, a lot of damage is done when we seek to divulge a warning message upon someone with whom we have no relationship, you know? And so yes. it's like, I feel responsible to tell you what you need to hear, even though I'll never invite you to my house for a meal, you know? And, and I tell this to people in my church all the time It's like before, and I do it usually in, in, pardon me, in relation to youth ministry is like, before you go up to a young person and tell them what they're, you know, doing wrong or anything like that, um, (laughs) invite them to your house to eat, you know, and invest in, in a relationship with them, let them know that you love them and that you care about them. Uh, so that you're not just someone sitting there as, you know, sitting in judgment with a lecture over them, but you're a loving, a person who truly loves them and is interested in their well-being. And, the and that right creates a totally to different context. Their lives. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you have to earn the right to tell them truth. Uh, right. You know, with, with that, I, it, back to the parenting thing, if some random stranger at church came up and grabbed my kid and started lecturing them on something, they might be perfectly in the right. And my kid might have absolutely deserved that lecture. And I would probably back them up in public because if my, I mean, unless my kid definitely didn't deserve the lecture, but if my kid did something and deserved to be corrected, but, but the difference between them doing it and me doing it is that if I do that to them, they know I love them. If that other person does that to them and has zero relationship with them and does it in a fear-mongering kind of way, like a scary, aggressive kind of way, they're going to walk away saying, wow, that person was mean and ugly and they don't like me. Mm. If I did it to my children and corrected them for the same thing, they'd be like, wow, mommy really wants me to be safe. That's right. Completely different emotional response. Yeah, that's right. Um, And and, and here's something I wanted to touch on Um, to the people who are like, but – God uses fear, so we should get to too. Um, if you get off on making other people afraid, that, that is a trait that is found in serial killers, serial rapists, and sociopaths. Hmm. If you like the feeling of power over someone where you can make them scared with the knowledge that you know, you need to, you need to reassess what you're doing with the gospel hmm. and why. Yeah. Because God's last resort is making us afraid of something, Mm. not his first resort. All throughout Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, he's like, and I pled with you and I begged with you and I invited you and I I reunited with you and finally you have rejected me for the final time and now I have to do this Mm. and I don't want to. In Ezekiel 18, I was just reading yesterday, how Jesus just, God is going through over and over again, how much he does not want to have to bring the consequences that 
have been chosen by the people. Ezekiel 18, 23, do you think I like to see wicked people die? Of course not. Mm. I want them to turn from their wicked ways and live. However, if righteous people turn from their righteous behavior and start doing sinful things and act like other sinners, should they be allowed to keep doing it? No, of course not. And so, you know, he's saying over and over again, he wants us to choose it for ourselves. Yeah, because absolutely. we want to do the right thing, and it breaks his heart yeah. to have to take action otherwise. I've been fascinated by um, even Jesus' response in the Gospels, where you know he's standing before Jerusalem, and you know we're talking about thousands of years of rebellion and rejection yeah. um, that have yeah. you know accumulated to this point where his own people are about to crucify him, and and his response is, right. you know, how long I've wanted to gather you like mm. a hen gathers her young, you know, he's in, and, and there's this, this weeping in his, in his expression there that, um, there's, yeah, there's this, you know, God, God is fundamentally, even in his acts of judgment, um, not a bully in any way, shape or form. And, and I think that that's yes. something really telling for us. If, if we think that, oh, we, that reminds- we need to bully others into no, the truth. Ahead. Yeah. There was a brilliant comment, and I cannot remember who said it, but I I reposted part one of the podcast, and there was a brilliant comment underneath one of the things where I had reposted it. And and they said, you know, just remember, if someone can be bullied into the church, they can also be bullied out of it Mm. because they did not choose it of their own free will. Yeah. And that really, it comes back to what we save them with, we save them to. That's right. Let Let me rephrase that. What we win someone with, we win someone to. God does the saving. We do none of the saving. Hmm. Scratch the first time I said yeah. that. I didn't mean it that way. <laughs> um, I, I, we, we have zero responsibility hmm. or share in the Holy Spirit's conviction and the actual salvation. And yeah. Anyway, but when we save, when we, <laughs> here I'm saying it again, when we bring someone in with fear-mongering, we win them to a spirit of fear-mongering. That's right. And then that perpetuates itself and it breeds mm. and it spreads. Yeah. And then their whole relationship with God is all about how scared they are or are not. Yeah, that's right. And the way they treat other people has to do with the baseline of how scared they are or aren't mm. and how scared they can make other people yeah. or not. That's right. And so what we win people with, if we win them with fear instead of love, then they can be bullied out. And That's they right. will bully others, and we and, make it a self-perpetuating scenario. Yeah, that's right. And I, I think we might have mentioned this in the last um, conversation that we had. I can't, I can't recall exactly, but um, I, I've seen this at play in people's lives where oh, yeah. they they come into the church through this particular approach, um, and and they get connected to a local church, for example, and you know the pastor at the local church is you know, preaching about the love of God and the grace of God. And it's like, it's not enough, you know? So it's like, I go to church and, oh yeah, I heard the love of God, but let me go home on YouTube and watch some conspiracy theories now because that's that's what I really <laughs> want. You know? And then they complain about the pastor never preaching the truth. Oh, he never preaches the truth. All he talks about is love. Um, and, and look, I get it. I understand that there's a shallow way to talk about the love of God, but um, there's a sense right. as well in which people complain about it because we won them with fear and we won them with these, mm-hmm. you know, real sort of dark, cynical, twisted version of, of the biblical worldview and then that's all they crave and and so what they'll do is they'll they'll chase teachers that give them that 
Um, and yes. it's, 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 it's a pathology. It's a pathology. That's it, right, is yeah. a, it is a hit of adrenaline, mm. and, it, and it comes into – it plays in with an elitist, superior mindset. Mm. I'm better than the world because I have information you don't have. Mm. I know things about prophecies that you don't know. I know things about the Illuminati that you don't know. I know things about conspiracies that you don't know. And I have power over you because I have all this information. You don't have it. Don't you want to be part of my really cool secret society where we expose all the other secret societies? And actually, we're not going to make it very secret because we're going to tell everyone about it and it's going to become bigger than the gospel to us. Mm. And that can be done with health. It can be done with conspiracy theories. It can be done with um, all sorts of different um, pseudo gospels Mm. that take over the real gospel and eclipse the message of God's love and his transforming power. And honestly, whatever it is that you're talking about, whether it's the Godhead or your diet and nutrition or your exercise or prophecy and conspiracies, if it is not making you a kinder person who is living out the fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, if you aren't getting more like Jesus in that, then you're preaching a false, a false gospel hmm. or you're preaching a variation of the gospel falsely. Yeah. Because when we allow ourselves to be drawn to or we preach in a way that draws people who are magnetized by elitism, superiority, conspiracies, the feeling of power over other people, power is a drug. Mm-hmm. It is a more potent drug than cocaine, than than alcohol, than heroin. And that's one of the reasons why sexual addiction and pornography addiction are so pervasive because they are not about sex. They are about power that's right. over other people that's and right. sexual power. They're about conquering. They're about being in control of things or letting someone else be in control of you, whichever direction you head with that. And it is about power that people get drunk on more than alcohol. You can get mm. drunk on power wow, and on control <laughs> over other people and on more information than other people, which is the control of information. It's power and control, which is the spirit of mm. Satan. That's right. Yeah. That's and tweetable. As long as That's we're, tweetable. Oh, oh we'll write it down and we Sarah can tweet McDougal. it later. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, look, um, tell, mean, me, tell me what you think about this because I'm actually – um, I'm, I'm preaching through the book of Daniel. I've been preaching through the book of Daniel um, all year, uh, my local mm-hmm. churches. I'm approaching it slight, from a slightly different angle rather than just rehashing all the symbolism and what it means. Although I do touch on the symbolism here and there. But what I'm really pursuing oh, it's kind is... kind of vital to the whole, the yeah, whole narrative. Yeah, sure. But, yeah. um, but what I'm really pursuing is the point of the book. And, and I'm making the case that you can understand the point of Daniel even if you can't fully grasp all the symbolism. Because a lot of people struggle with that. Like, oh, I can't remember what that means. I've studied it seven times. Well, look, don't stress that too much. Let's look at the main point of the book. Like, what story is it telling? Mm-hmm. What message is it giving us? And so that's kind of what I've been right. focusing on. And, and I'm, I'm continuing that this weekend. And, and so for me, as I read the book of Daniel, the, the main theme that emerges is that 
uh, there's a struggle between two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of man, which mm-hmm. is depicted as beasts mm-hmm. primarily, right? Um, in in Daniel, right, right. Um, you know, you have this metals in, in Daniel too, but then it transitions to this beastly sort of imagery, um, which is fitting because the empire, human empire, is driven by the beastly impulse of self, right? Uh, beasts mm-hmm. don't have conscience; they operate off of and self. the longing for precious metals. Yeah. And that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a good <laughs> point. So, you know, there's this beastly impulse of self that drives human empire. Yeah. Uh, and so, the, you know, empires are, are, are depicted as these beasts. And then we, we have the kingdom of God that's depicted in the visions as well, which is, which is um, synonymous with, you know, with Jesus. And, and, and you have these constant illusions like, oh, you know, it was this kingdom without human hand, right? Like there was no beastly impulse that has a say in how this kingdom is structured. And then in Daniel 7, you have, you know, the, the son of man is sort of the archetype of the kingdom and... Um, again, it just repeats this idea that it's 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 from outside. It's extraterrestrial. It's it's not made by human hands. And so you have these two kingdoms in conflict throughout the entire book. And I won't go into any more detail, or else we'll be here forever. But um, <laughs> one of the main points that I'm, I'm I'm really hashing out in this next sermon is that you know it, it, Daniel confronts us repeatedly with the question: What kingdom do you belong to? Because uh, you can't belong to the beastly impulse kingdom of man and to the upside down kingdom of God. You, you can't belong to both right. of them. Uh, you can only belong to right. one or the other. And so one of the common questions, I mean, or answers rather that you would, you would feel or you know, that people would give uh, as they hear these questions is, oh, I belong to the kingdom of God because I belong to the church. I go to church. Um, and yet it's interesting because Daniel depicts the greatest antagonist against God to be the church itself. Uh, so you, you have all these mm-hmm. beastly empires that rise and fall, and then you have the apex of all of them, and it's the church, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. And, 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 and what, what makes that interesting is that when you look at the history of the church, it's, its proclamation, you know, has, has always been Jesus, and it's always been God, right? The, the existence mm-hmm. of God, the divinity of Jesus, and it's established, you know, um, um, hospitals throughout the world and orphanages and all these things and so it's got this proclamation that seems to be very aligned with the person of jesus but then it has a practice that doesn't match its proclamation it's a practice of Mm. dominance and control and coercion and trampling and 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 twisting you know and you have all this language that used throughout daniel how the how the church empire operates the principles that it operates off of are the same mm-hmm. principles of the kingdoms that preceded the human empires that preceded and so fundamentally i guess the message that i take away from this from a very pragmatic level is that we determine what kingdom we belong to not simply by what we proclaim but by what we practice and it's it's possible Absolutely. to um it's possible to be in church and proclaim the message of the church with you know pristine faithfulness and then go home and practice coercion and abuse over your family you know and and that happens absolutely and it happens a lot absolutely it's not possible it's very likely probable it's happening in every church all over the world in every denomination i mean the kingdom of god this is where we we get confused sometimes you're talking about the greatest antagonist being the church Hmm. the kingdom of god reigns in the heart Ultimately, mm-hmm. because it's every person's conscience deciding for themselves who they will worship. And that starts right back in the beginning. I mean, Exodus 20, first commandment, who you will worship. 
Yeah. No other gods before me. Joshua twenty four fifteen. choose you this day who you will serve. And that mantra, that thread weaves all the way through to the end of Revelation, where it is all about who you choose to worship. And that it really, it's who are you emulating? Who are you mimicking? You cannot remove others' personal voice. You cannot destroy their personal agency and violate their conscience and still be working for Christ. You Mm. cannot have coercive control in any aspect of your life. And that includes your evangelism, your parenting, forcing what you believe to be the will of God on your children instead of teaching them how to critically and analytically think and choose well for themselves and giving them tools as they grow in maturity. Um, I'm not advocating wild, uncontrolled parenting. Don't, don't get off on (laughs) crazy side subjects, but you know, this, when we have tactics like this, we're, we're, succumbing to this colossal misrepresentation of God's character. If you imagine a spectrum, and on one end you have Christ, and on the other end you have Satan. And, and you know, the term narcissism is such a buzz phrase in today's world. And you talk to secular psychologists, and they're like, oh, people with narcissistic personality cannot be cured. They will never change. They probably won't, but it won't be because they cannot, because no one is beyond the reach of God's transforming power, it will be because they will not. They choose not to be transformed. But if you have this spectrum with Christ on one end and Satan on the other end, it's basically a selfishness to selflessness spectrum, right? Satan is purely selfish. He's all take. Jesus is purely selfless. He is all give. It's the narcissism spectrum in the gospel. Mm. And every person alive or who has ever lived falls somewhere on that spectrum. We would like to think that Hitler and Lenin and Stalin and Pol Pot, they all fall very far on the end of toward (laughs) Satan on that narcissism spectrum. And we would also like to think that as Christians and as God followers and as disciples of the gospel, we fall closer to Christ's end of the all give selflessness of the spectrum. But honestly, a lot of times that only happens at church. When we come home, we're down on like, not quite as far as like Pol Pot and Hitler, but we're pretty despotic. Mm. When we come home, I mean, you can talk about God's love all day long at church. And if you come home and your children have no voice at all, especially your older children, and you're not teaching them to think and choose and letting them risk, you're being less like Christ than you'd like to think you are. If that's how you rule your teams at work, in the workplace, if that's how you run the board meeting at church, if that's how you run the PTA, I don't care what it is. If that's your spirit, you're using tactics from how Satan does things instead of how Jesus does things. Now, does that mean we don't stand up for truth and honor? No. Does that mean we don't pursue justice? Of course not. Does that mean we don't speak firmly against wrong? Of course, that's not what I'm talking about. Anybody who goes and reads my blogs or follows my Facebook page knows I'm all about speaking out against sin and injustice and exploitation. But We do it with the spirit of Christ's love. Mm. So where the question is, if if you hold up that spectrum, and I'm actually standing here in my studio with my arms up wide, even though this is an audio, because I talk with my hands. (laughs) 
call me Italian. Um, but you know, if you if you hold up the spectrum, Christ offering Himself in your place versus Satan using every trick in the book to get you to do what He wants mm. to lose mm. your soul. Where do your gospel interactions fall? And parenting, you guys, is a gospel interaction. Leading at church is a gospel interaction. Overseeing your team at work is a gospel interaction, just as much as Bible studies and evangelism that is called such. Mm -hmm. So Satan will use control, intimidation, domination, power over, pressure, manipulation, false guilt, trickery, bribery, incentives. He does all of those things. And when we use those tactics, we are making a mockery of God. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. God uses one thing. He says, here's the facts, here's the truth, and I love you. Please mm. choose what's right. Please choose what will make you happiest. Yeah. Here's the information you need. Yeah. And, you know, Ty Gibson is one of my favorite speakers, and he, he says, God will win us to his heart with love or not at all. Mm. The end. Yeah. If God was going to control, he could have slapped the fruit out of Eve's hand and said, ah, uh -uh, told you no. You don't get to do that. Yeah. That's powerful. He didn't. Yeah. And look, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and I think that that's a really powerful takeaway. Um, you know, if, we, if we're talking about in terms of practicality and, and I, and I want to um, uh, mm -hmm. sort of switch over because in your video um, on are your church's evangelism tactics abusive, you also take the time to identify what does biblical evangelism look like, right? A proper method of evangelism mm -hmm. look like. So I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll jump on that in a second. But um, yeah, like I think one of the key things that we can do and, 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 you know, obviously I don't mean this in any sort of legalistic sense. I'm assuming that whoever's listening to the podcast gets the gospel, right? I'm not talking about any sort of navel gazing, man centered, work centered approach or anything like that. Um, but there's a sense in which uh, the introspection, right? A healthy sense of introspection is necessary. You know, as I think it's Peter or Paul, mm -hmm. and I can't remember at the moment, it's at 10 p.m. here, um, <laughs> where he says, you know, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. There's a sense in which there's, yeah. a, there's a healthy way of doing that. Um, and, and looking, and this is something I've been doing as I've been reading through Daniel, right? Looking at the defining pillars of human empire, because it uses these phrases to describe human empire, like phrases like trampling, right? Um, phrases like coercion or controlling yeah. or twisting or dominating. Mm -hmm. And, you know, depending on what version you're using, um, you'll find these key phrases that, you know, it, you know, right now I'm reading through Daniel 8 because that's the one I'm preaching on. You know, it talks about how the, you know, the, the ram attacked the goat and, and, and he trampled him and there was no one that could deliver him because he exercised such overwhelming dominance um, in his campaign. Yeah. You know, the, the Greeks and their campaign against the Medo-Persians. And, and then along comes, the, you know, the other horn and repeats the same patterns of behavior, right? Um, it's, it's, it's the same thing. And, and you, you see this all the way back in, you know, in Daniel chapter one with Babylon conquering mm -hmm. Israel and taking its captives, you know, this, this is how human empire works. And even the best human empire, you know, even the very best human empires, and I define the very best by the ones that have the best record of human rights, um, are still fundamentally built on oppression. Like there's no way around it, right? Um, so I'm thinking, for example, of, uh, you know, I, when I was growing up, I, was, I used to always hear the Adventist evangelists say, you know, America is a lamb that will become a dragon. I'm reading there from mm -hmm. Revelation. Oh, it's a lamb and it's going to become a dragon someday. Um, and, and one day I read the text and I was like, well, there, there's no actual before and after in the text. It kind of seems like they're synonymous. Um, and then I got to sort of talking around and exploring around and I, and I discovered <laughs> that 
the before and after view of America of a lamb that becomes a dragon is 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 a view that's only held by a certain class of people. Um, if you talk to a Native American, they they won't ever say <laughs> that it was a lamb. Pretty draconian way back when. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It used to be a lamb. It'll become. It's always been a dragon for them. It's always been a dragon for the African American right. community. The slaves right. who were brought. You know. And so even even in a, a wonderful nation, and you know, I, I, and I'm American, and I'm not anti-American in any sense. But uh, looking at the facts, like even a wonderful nation like America is still built on the beastly impulse of self. There's no way human empire yeah. can operate in any other way. Mm-hmm. And 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 the thing is that human empire is is a is a universal manifestation of what's already in each of our individual hearts. And 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 yes. this is what I see Daniel challenging Absolutely. us. Is Daniel saying, look, these are the building blocks of human empire. Now, which one do you belong to? Do you belong to this empire that's going to be judged and destroyed and annihilated? Or do mm-hmm. you belong to the kingdom of heaven, which operates off of a completely different ethic? Um, and it's a yeah. really confronting question, but I think it's a question I would encourage our listeners to to really mm-hmm. ponder and take the time to explore, um, you know, looking yeah. at the details, at the practical outworking of our faith is it a faith that others would describe as coercive and controlling and domineering and arrogant and narcissistic? Or is it a faith that others would describe as loving and inspiring and, um, you know, and selfless? And I think that can help right. us identify, you know, what kingdom do I really belong to in, in the grand scheme of things? Um, but Sarah, I, w- I want to jump over to um, this other aspect that you talked about in your video, and that is you know, true biblical evangelism. You know, we've talked at, at quite a bit about, you know, what we shouldn't be doing, you know, the, the fear mongering, right, the coercion, right, right. And the manipulation. Um, now, what should we be doing? What What does it look like? Because I think a lot of us are so used, and not everyone, I'm sure there's plenty of people in Adventism who maybe have never seen a coercive approach, and I'm so thankful for that. Um, but for those I want to hear who, from them. Yeah, if there yeah, is I'd, someone I'd, I'd out there who to, has never well. <laughs> seen a, a coercive approach ever and who can honestly say that you have the evangelism and the soul winning, not my favorite term, but you know what mm. I mean, um, and the, the gospel kingdom growth approaches, whatever that has been for you, if you can honestly say that you have never seen something coercive and you've never seen someone act in a controlling or dominating um, conscience destroying or takeover kind of way I want to hear or even or even because uh, this is often you know very very um, explosive but even the more subtle you know manipulative sneaky yes um, if, if there's no manipulation no guilt yeah. no trickery no bait and switch no quiet pressure or bribery or incentivization. If, you, if you've <laughs> had an experience that has none of those things, I absolutely want to talk to you. Yeah, I do too. I think that would be fantastic. Um, mm-hmm. So, but I think, I think we could venture to say that most of us haven't had that experience. I know I certainly haven't. So <laughs> no, talk to me either. a little bit about what biblical evangelism looks like. All right. So, this right here is why I believe that um, our taping for this podcast got kicked down a few days. This right here. Okay. Um, and I I knew we wanted to talk about really practical things. And I know that I've done different types of, of very practical, laid back, daily life 
evangelistic efforts um, because that's how I choose to live my life. But a lot of times we do those things and we don't necessarily see it following into fruit where we get to see the results of it. I don't think any of those things are wasted, but we don't always get to see those interactions become someone making a decision for, for Christ or choosing to align their life with the gospel. Um, so the challenge with that is that it, it, it feels like we don't get to see the full picture mm. oftentimes. And like it, it maybe it's not as successful as we've been programmed to view success. Um, so I was thinking about this. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm going to be talking with Marcus. We're going to be going through all of this other stuff. And I really want to have like a contemporary right now kind of illustration to share instead of me sharing my ideas of how I think it should be better. Um, and God brought one. Awesome. So a couple of days ago, I'm talking to a friend of mine who is a, a coach and um, she works with a, a particular demographic of people who generally have not been exposed to um, Judeo-Christian scripture, who have not been exposed to typical, I mean, definitely not like in the U.S. Bible Belt kind of people, definitely not people who grew up in church or with a Jesus Christ gospel-oriented mindset. So she's working with a very different demographic. And one of the challenges with that demographic is that you don't have pre-existing knowledge about God, his character, what he expects, how to worship, because they have no exposure to that, right? So you, you don't get to build on anything that's already there. So it's really a great illustration. And she was telling me about a series of Bible studies that she's having with a young man and how that's going. And she said that his understanding of religion is that it's used politically to control people. And he had started some studies with a guy who told him to begin by reading about the history of the Bible. And he said that was boring. He wanted to hear from God, not about the 13th century. Like that's not what he was in for. Yeah. And so my friend um, said that she had started by having him assigning him one chapter and having him read it three times, minimum three times. And he he had asked her to help him learn about Christianity. And so she asked him if he wanted to learn about Christianity or to learn from Christ. That was one of her first questions. And he was like, well, uh, I mean, like, that's not a normal question you hear someone ask. Like, do you want to learn about Christianity as a religion or do you want to learn from Jesus? Take mm. your pick. Um, but it's a perfect answer. Because one, you're just acquiring more knowledge about how other people believe. And mm -hmm. the second option, you're opening your mind to being taught by God himself. Right. And so she says, you know, all Christians claim to follow the teachings of Jesus, but not all Christians teach the same thing. So instead of me teaching you about all the different stripes of Christianity, why don't I just show you how to learn from Jesus himself? Mm. instead of learning from other people about how they think 
other people should behave or what other people should do according to their understanding. And so she told him, she's like, look, I'm not going to teach you about the true path to, to God. I'm going to point out some things to read from holy books so that God can teach you himself and you can discover that path for yourself. Mm. And he's like, okay, awesome. Now, this right here is a fundamental switch from how we traditionally do evangelism because yeah. traditional evangelism, let's break that down. Traditional evangelism is me knowing more than you and coming here to tell you all the stuff I don't, that I know you don't know yet so that you can think just like me. Mm. That's really what traditional evangelism boils down to. Yeah. I'm your teacher. Shut up, sit down, listen, I'm, you be the student. Mm. And if you're a good student, you'll ask enough questions to help me know that you're following along, but not too many questions because are not too deep because I don't want to be challenged on what I actually believe when you find holes in it. Mm. So, what she's doing is taking herself completely out of the equation and having faith that God is big enough to communicate directly to another person and convict that other person in their own mind. Yeah. That which is awesome. Is yeah. Ultimately what Protestantism was all about, right? Mm, yeah. Not to rag on our Catholic friends, but the, the, the whole split between Catholicism and Protestantism was the idea that we can talk to God directly ourselves without the intercession, the intercession mm. of someone who has uh, more training than us, that mm. the Holy Spirit can communicate with anyone who is willing to listen and learn. And so that's what she's doing. She's telling him, you don't need me. I'll guide you. I'll walk beside you. You're going to do the work yourself. And in doing so, she's teaching him. He doesn't have a clue what it means. She's teaching him to be a Berean. That's she's awesome. teaching him to never accept someone else's interpretation of something without going to study it himself and ask God to speak to his mind and show him. She's teaching him by example from day one hmm. to not accept other people's heresy. Yeah. So he's not getting bullied into anything. So she, she told him, she's like, look, you're not going to go through the entire Bible three times through every chapter. We're going to go through things that focus on the gospel. So she started by assigning him Genesis 1. And he's like, okay, I'll read Genesis 1. And then... What, what she has in expectations for him is that he'll change his life little by little as he decides what needs to change in his life to yeah. live in harmony with what God showed him in that chapter that day. Yeah. So she's going to ask him, she asks him to quietly bless somebody each day. Excuse me. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sorry. But, but so part of his assignment is to bless someone quietly. Hmm. Get no credit for it. Just quietly bless someone every day. That, that creates a sense of other awareness and other-centeredness in someone who may have had no background in anything but selfishness. Yeah. Um, and then to keep track daily of what he's thankful for, to develop an awareness of who God is. He doesn't know that that's why it is. Mm. But to, to see things that he's thankful for, and later she will help him draw the threads of learning who God is and how God's love was being shown to him and those things that those good things that happened, the things that he was thankful for, and developing that fruit of the spirit of gratefulness and goodness and awareness of joy, choosing mm -hmm. to live in joy. 
So then eventually she'll be asking him to share what he's learning with someone. Now that, that can be difficult, especially because this particular scenario has someone who is in a completely non-Christian kind of environment. Hmm. But if he's learning things that are changing the way he treats other people, they're going to be asking questions because he's going to become different. That's right. And, and so instead of fear-based coercion, he's being connected with, invited, and encouraged to use his free will. It's not about knowledge base. It's about transformative obedience to the word one tiny step a day. That's it's about awesome. so much more than just propagating another well-intentioned Jesus jerk. Hmm. And, and then, so the next step for him is to decide daily with each new chapter, one thing to change and put it into a statement. It's an I will statement. And then if he's ready to act on it, pray for strength and courage to make that change. And what she does is ask permission to hold him accountable to it. And then the next time they talk, she asks him how he's doing with whatever it was he decided. So his conscience is becoming more tender because he's learning to listen to what do I need to change? Well, then how do I stick with it? And then, and then she will ask, how can I help him? She's like, you know, basically it's just coaching. I'm like, yeah, you know what that's called? Discipling. That's it. You're step-by-step with the person. You're hand-in-hand with them. You're letting God lead them. You're not Mm. telling them where to go because really it is unbelief that makes us take control over other people's religious journeys. We don't believe that God is big enough to lead that person the way he led us. Mm. So it's doubt in the power of God that makes us try to take control over anyone else's personal journey and pride that we can do it better than God, which is a toxic combination. So each person in this kind of scenario is just kind of glancing over their shoulder at the person beside them and saying, Hey, what can I pray for you for? How can I help you? How can I support you in the things that God is telling you that you need to improve in your life that need to be changed? And it's so then When he's read this chapter three times, she asked him to retell it in his own words without looking. It's about internalization, not rote regurgitation. Mm. And, And the church that my friend attends does this as their study pattern when they're doing church. So in the whole group, one person reads aloud and then they read it silently. And I mean, and then everyone is reading silently while the one person reads aloud. And then another person reads it aloud and they know to t- pay attention because every person is going to be asked to retell it in their own words. And the rules are you can't add anything and you can't leave anything out, but you have to put it in your own words. Hmm. And then the rest of the group checks against the chapter to see if they've added anything or left anything out because this prevents heresy. Nobody's mm-hmm. telling anybody else what the narrative means. They're focusing on what it really has to say, and then they ask questions. That's awesome. The questions are, what do you like most about this story and what stood out to you? What does this chapter reveal to you about God? What does this chapter reveal to you about people? And in order to be in alignment with or obedient to what God is showing you in this passage, what needs to change in your life? And then how can we help you make that change? Such a different approach. Yeah. 
but it leads people into their own knowledgeable, internalized ownership of their belief in and connection to God. There's no bullying in. There can't be any bullying out because it becomes part of the fiber of their soul. That's right. Yeah. And this this is the kind of Christian who can who can stand alone, right? They can um, exactly. The faith is theirs. They've they've discovered it. Yeah. Yeah. There's no like, well, I can I can just spit right out back to you what you said on that big old prophecy chart, mm. you know, um, because I memorized it. And then, you know, ask me in six months, I won't have a clue yeah. um, because it's it's a transformational thing. It takes yeah. longer. Yeah. It's more involved. You can't mm-hmm. just like drive in, hit it for six weeks and bail out because yep. it doesn't work that way. That's right. But here's another thing. It it removes the celebrity culture pitfalls Yes, because no one is the big shot teaching everyone else while getting away with abuse Mm. or addiction or whatever else in their private life. And then when that gets exposed, everyone is shocked and let down and uh, horrified and feels betrayed. There, there isn't space for any of that. Yeah. When I was 14 years old, my family moved to Russia as missionaries and one of the things I remember being kind of shocked at, even as a kid, was that people in the church would carry their Bibles around and they would have wrapped and taped up their Bibles with pictures of the American or Australian, I remember some of both, evangelists who baptized them. Wow. And then the inside covers of the Bible, there would be autographs from famous Western pastors and then pictures of that person that that was carrying the Bible with those pastors, like taped in or laminated in covered in plastic. And, um, and it was this like icon kind of culture, like replacing the traditional icons with the faces of these new celebrities, these saints, these messengers of God that were high above the rest of the people. And, and it's, it's a syncretism that, that just merged right in. But when you're doing stuff like I'm talking about here, there's no room left for that yeah. because you're allowing the Holy Spirit to convict souls. Yeah. To say that I win a soul is to usurp the role of one of the Godhead. Yeah. Honestly, let me say that again for the people in the back. If I say that I am winning souls, I am blasphemous serping the role of one of the Godhead in the Holy Spirit. Hmm. If we did this more, it would become a movement again instead of an organization that is focused on self-protection. Hmm. The problem with that, and this is why it gets pushed back, is because organizations are self-protective and movements are like forest fires. You cannot right. keep them in tidy little boxes. Mm. But Matthew twenty-eight eighteen to 20 commands all of the disciples of Christ, right? Yep. Who is the Great Commission for? Only the ordained clergy? Only the people getting a, an organizational paycheck? <laughs> or are for we everybody. truly a priesthood yeah. of all believers? We, yeah. If we are a priesthood of all believers, then every single person... Mm. can do evangelism that is not abusive, that is focused on love, that is focused on free will, that is focused on authenticity, Mm. and that is transforming them into better, kinder, more loving, patient, joyful, peaceful people, 
Galatians 5.22 and the fruit of the Spirit, just as much as it's transforming the people around them. Wow. Wow, this is awesome, Sarah. Wow. Rant over. No, that was awesome. That was, <laughs> that was awesome. No, thanks so much for sharing that, man. We're getting up to an hour now, so I think it's. I think that's a really good place I know. to... Um, yeah. I think that's a really good place to start to wrap up. Thank you so much for for sharing that with us. You know, as 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 you were talking about that, um, one uh, there was one thing that popped into my head as well, that I think this approach to studying the Bible, um, one of the one of the good outcomes of this approach that your friend is using, apart from the good outcomes or that you've already described. Mm-hmm. Um, some years ago, I was at a local church and um, a part of a Bible study group. And we were using a curriculum, and the idea was to go home, and the curriculum had Bible verses that we had to look up and then express what we thought about the verse. Um, So it was a guided curriculum, but it was also open in the sense that it wasn't giving you all the answers. You went home, you read the verses, you wrote down your thoughts and, you know, what you were experiencing and stuff. Um, And then you would come back together as a class, and you would all share with one another what you had experienced. And it broke my heart that mm-hmm. a whole bunch of the people who were in the class, there was a lot of um, older people in the class, people who'd been in church for 40, 50 years, you know, older generation Adventists, um, who would come to class and for every single Bible verse, they had looked up um, Ellen White's comments in the Bible commentary thing, and mm-hmm. they had copied and pasted verbatim. There was no... Because they could not think for themselves. They couldn't think for themselves. They couldn't, they could not think for themselves. And it just made me think like, I mean, if she was here, she would cry because the whole purpose of her ministry was to get us back in the Bible, thinking through it for ourselves. And don't uh, get me wrong. I love the broadening of the mind of commentaries and additional writings and a conflict of the ages series. I I love them. Mm -hmm. I actually just got my brand new conflict series from Tyson symbols and yep. it's sitting on top of my bookcase in this really copy. gorgeous way. So, yeah, oh, so dude, cool. you gotta get those. They're so cool. They are cool. So cool. If you guys haven't heard of it, check out Tyson symbols, conflict of the ages. Yeah, it's called the conflict beautiful. That you gotta check conflict, it out. I haven't yes. ordered yeah, mine because yeah, yeah. I'm all the way in Australia and it's like super expensive. Dude, well, I was an early adopter. I, I got it in like maybe it a year ago. Expensive. I don't know. Check it out. Definitely check it out. I, I want to say it. Let's it's just leave it. Really cool. It's yeah. really cool. It's really cool. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we got a link to that. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, I love that. I, I love all of those books, and I think they're super useful, but they cannot replace our ability to think for ourselves yeah. and our exercising the brain mm. to, to explore what God has in a message for us, because our particular, my particular triumphs and trials, my tragedies and my, my, my obstacles are not going to be the same as yours. Mm. My, my strengths and my assets are not going to be the same as yours. So, and, and God is a, a God of individual connection, which means that the gospel to me, the truth does not change. I am not yeah. talking about a gospel that's different for everyone. The truth does not change, but the gospel's applications in my life are going to need to focus on the things that are weaks and weaknesses and strengths for me. Mm. And if I cannot think for myself and I'm just 
parroting what you say or what Ellen White says or what Ty Gibson says or anyone else, I'm missing out on God's specific transformative power for me. That's right. Oh, man, Zara, we got to wrap it up. Whew, this has been amazing. This has been awesome. I really hope those of you who have been listening can walk away and, and think, wow, okay, this is, this is something fresh and new and I'm really excited to, to, to do a different approach, to have a different approach for connecting with others, for sharing with others, for journeying with others. Um, one of the biggest takeaways that I, I take from this conversation, Sarah, is that um, when we study the Bible with others to, to approach them from the side on, not from the top down. Uh, we're we're yes. fellow sojourners, yeah. not gurus. And, um, mm -hmm. and that makes a huge difference mm -hmm. in how we journey through scripture together and pointing people to Jesus, not ourselves, right? He's, he's the one that needs to be the hero in the story, not us. So, man, this has been absolutely fascinating, absolutely amazing. Thank you again, Sarah, for sharing. And look, before I close, um, for those of you listening, you can get in touch with Sarah. You can go on the storychurchproject.com, look up the latest blog, uh, Are Your Church's Evangelism Tactics Abusive? Either part one or part two, doesn't matter. Her contact details are there, YouTube channel and uh, Facebook page. Um, but also I want to encourage you guys to check out, um, some of her books, uh, particularly, uh, the one that we talked about last time. And then there's another one that is coming out that I'll have you comment on for just a minute. Um, Sarah, uh, sure. the first mm -hmm. one is, uh, miss, we believe in predators. We trust 37 things you do not want to know about abuse in church, but you really should. Great title. Love it. So intriguing. Um, now, Sarah, you also mentioned to me that there is another one that is getting ready to be published. Can you mention that quickly yeah. before we wrap up? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the, the one coming out is actually my third book, and um, it is called Safe Churches, Responding to Abuse in the Faith Community. And it's really written on the premise that you can can't tell who the abusers are in your church. We'd like to think we can, but we're wrong and mm. we need to know why. So this book is for people who want to discover how to recognize and respond to red flags, how to feel more equipped to educate their church staff, how to protect the vulnerable, how to discern genuine repentance instead of getting taken for a ride and how to reflect God's character to your church's vulnerable and your children. So it is a training manual. It's a, hef a heavy duty, kind of a hefty book, about 200 pages. And it presents proven approaches to handling abuse at church in ways that are both biblically redemptive and legally responsible. Wow. Finding now, when out. is that going to be available? Because it hasn't been released yet. It has not been released yet. And you know what? We, we could we could actually do uh, a blurb about it when it does come out. I am okay. hoping by the end of the month okay. um, or at least um, we don't have an actual release date set for it. We are in those last throws. The cover's done. The interior design is done. Nice. We've just got to get it where we can um, make sure the final proofing is done and send it to the press. All right. So, Fantastic. Right but myths we believe – and Predators We Trust Predators is available we trust. on Amazon. It is on available Amazon. on Kindle all around the world and on Amazon as a paperback. And it's, you know what? I have to do a shout out to Emily Designs. Um, she is absolutely amazing. And she laid the whole book out like a miniature magazine. Nice. So it is not just a, a great book with great content. Yes. I, oh, and by the way. Darren Pratt is my co-author on that, and he's from your side of the world yeah. in Australia. 
Yeah, from the other we side of Australia. We co-opted that. That's not just my... me. Yeah, <laughs> but still, hey, you know, it, like it's a little bit closer to you than me. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, Darren and I worked on that together with our our joint experiences on the most common myths that people believe and mm. debunking those myths. So it's like a myth, and then three or four paragraphs about why it is a myth and what the truth is, and then resources, either scripture or data studies whatever it is that debunks that. So you know where the information came from. And so there's 37 of those. And Emily Designs did an amazing job of laying it out. So it's the kind of book that you can have out for people to look at, that you can give to your church uh, staff, your church leaders, your school leaders, your ministry leaders. And um, and it's really eye appealing, which was super important to us. Way more expensive to print color all the way through, though. I'll oh, tell yeah, you what. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my I was actually, because I've got yeah, um, um, a book pretty. that I'm getting ready to, to publish, although I still don't have a date for it either. But the first edition, the first manuscript edition was all in color. And when I saw how much it was going to cost per print, uh-huh. I was like, no, we're going back to the drawing table for this. Right? <laughs> I was like, nobody's going to buy that. But, you know, oh, I'm, sure, man. I'm sure things have worked out a lot better for you. Um, Sarah, thank you so much for, for joining us again. I really appreciate it. Uh, we're going to wrap it up there. And once again, guys, if you want to get in touch with Sarah McDougall, um, head over to the storychurchproject.com, look up the link and you will find her YouTube channel and Facebook linked there. And you can find her books on Kindle and Amazon and, um, look, wherever you are, uh, whatever part of the world you're in, uh, whatever phase of ministry you're in, whether you are an employed, um, uh, you know, clergy in the church, or you are a church member who's actively involved in ministry. I hope that these conversations have given you something to think about, but not just think about, uh, but something to apply as we seek to redesign our churches for mission, that part of that redesign would involve going back to God's way of reaching the heart. So thank you guys once more, and I will catch you next week.